The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. Coming to you from the heart of Texas, this is Accounting Matters, the go-to podcast for accounting and finance professionals from your friends here at Embark. Thanks for joining us, y'all. I'm Nicole Harger, Embark's National Quality Managing Director. And today, as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Adam Can't get Olson. rid of me yet, yeah. <laughs> Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. So we are on day like 68 of January, it feels like. <laughs> um, you know, but I guess thankfully there's still time is specifically private companies are thinking about year-end reporting, year-end close, starting their audits. We thought, let's spend time today talking about some key reminders for our listeners um, and just provide them with some things that they should be thinking about as they're, like I said, closing the books and starting their audit process. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So as I mentioned, you know, private companies starting Mm -hmm. to think about or hopefully are already in the process, right, of year in close, year in financial statements, um, probably kicking off their audits or at least starting that process. What are some key accounting and reporting developments that they need to keep in mind? Yeah. So I guess just maybe how I think about that question is like, what are some of the maybe effective accounting standards in 2023 that, you know, if it relates to you and your business should be reflected in your your annual financial statements for this year. Um, and there's kind of three big ones that stand out. So CECL, so the new credit loss standard, uh, standard around simplified goodwill impairment, uh, it's changing some of the accounting there. And then lastly, um, a standard that came out around the disclosures over supplier finance programs. And I know a couple of those we've already done past episodes on, uh, deeper dives, I would say, on accounting matters. So uh, definitely check those out if uh, any of those sound unfamiliar to you. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's walk through each of those at a high level. I know we've spent some time going to going into some detail in previous episodes, like you mentioned. So mm-hmm. high level today, we'll kind of just, you know, key reminders. So sure. let's start with Cecil. Okay. Um, what should our listeners need to hear about? The big thing is it is effective. It actually was supposed to be effective as of the beginning of this fiscal year. Yep. So, uh, Spoiler alert, you should have been accounting for uh, the new credit loss standard as of 1-1 of 2023. But like many private companies, we know things tend to kind of slip through the cracks and then it becomes an issue towards year end as you're kind of finalizing annual financial statements and obviously as you go through the audit season. But the original CECL standard, it came out in 2016, so it's already effective, been effective for a bit for uh, for public companies. And so now time is up for privates, Yep. but it more or less changes the way companies need to evaluate the risk of credit loss, um, on their financial assets that they hold that are measured in amortized cost. But it also extends to, uh, receivables related to net investments and leases and a bunch of other things. So, um, it goes from what we historically knew as being more of an incurred loss model, some more of like a historical look back and evaluating kind of collectability for whether there's any credit risk. Um, and it is now more forward looking, right? So that's the whole concept of what CECL stands for, which is current expected <laughs> credit loss. So you have to actually kind of forecast like 
uh, on origination day one, like what is that risk of credit loss? Um, so that's something companies are going to have to kind of overhaul. I mean, for many companies, um, you know, the impact of CECL and going through that exercise may not result in a material change into the outcome, but the mechanics for how you perform that assessment and the assumptions and things you have to navigate are different. Yep. And so we are finding a lot of companies needing to prepare, even if they feel the outcome is not going to be that much different or the adjustment they might have to make from changing this methodology um, is immaterial. You know, they're still having to prepare something that their auditors can then look at and understand that they went through the thought process and all that. But for certain industries, like if you think about banking or financial services, companies that do a lot of lending or have significant balances of receivables and things and have higher risk around that, the the exercise is much more complex. Yep. And I know there are private banks and things out there. So those types of entities um, as well are probably having to wrestle with this a bit more. And so I guess at its core, what Cecil really changes, like I said, it's there's kind of two factors. You still consider historical precedent, kind of how we did with the incurred loss model, but then mm -hmm. it also requires you again, think about current conditions that might be impacting uh, credit risk, um, but then also looking at reasonable and supportable forecasts over kind of the, the life of those different financial assets and, and making sure that you're factoring any implications there. A um, little less work to do, like I said, for the traditional commercial entities that maybe just have more trade receivables yep. and things like that on their books that are shorter term in nature. Um, but again, we're seeing a lot of companies still having to prepare something to kind of get get through the audit, get through, you know, get people comfortable with like their conclusions that maybe this standard didn't actually impact them as much. But we we've also seen circumstances where, you know, just given the macroeconomic environment we're in today that, um, you know, maybe historically what you would have reserved um, and now applying a CISO model is yielding a much more uh, material result. Yep. OK, that's very helpful. Um, let's hop into the next one. So huh? you mentioned simplified goodwill impairment, mm -hmm. which I imagine hopefully, you know, most clients have already early adopted this in years past, right? Because it simplifies your goodwill impairment assessment. But um, and just in case somebody hasn't, what do we need to know about this one? Yeah, so this one, and, and to your point, I actually don't know that many private entities that have have goodwill balances or have had goodwill balances on their on their balance sheet for a while that probably haven't adopted it, but this is when it would actually be effective. So what it does is it eliminates kind of that, that two-step impairment measurement process that you had to go through under historical gap. And it, and just for, I guess, maybe familiarity's sake here, what that would do is it would require companies in this kind of step two process to do more of a hypothetical purchase price allocation to measure their actual goodwill impairment. Um, you no longer have to go through that exercise. It's now just a one step, uh, impairment assessment. So it's, you know, you measure the fair value of your reporting unit against the carrying value of that reporting unit. Um, and you know, any difference there could, you know, yield in an impairment charge. So it, it, it more or less just kind of takes out some of the, the bulk, um, and kind of rigor around this two-step process because, you know, when the standard came out, stakeholders just felt like that didn't add a lot of value and it was cumbersome and kind of risks and rewards kind of analysis. What is the benefit of going through this? You know, the FASB ultimately decided that, um, you know, let's, let's, let's simplify this. It was back when the FASB was doing a lot of simplification initiatives across other standards. And so this was one of them at the time um, yep. that is now effective for private companies if they haven't adopted yep. it already. 
Okay. So I know with this standard specific to private companies, there's some rules around some of the private company alternatives that potentially companies have elected around amortization of goodwill and subsuming intangibles into goodwill and whether or not you can adopt this new standard or not. Can you go into a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously if you elect to do the simplified or I guess the private company alternative for goodwill and, and, you know, just amortize your goodwill, like you said, over 10 years or a period shorter than that, if, if deemed appropriate, um, it would, it would reduce even more complexity, right? So you wouldn't even have to worry about the two-step model, which was original. Now it was moving to that simplified one step. Um, in that case, you essentially just have to deal with the amortization and then maybe think about any type of triggering events that could warrant, um, some type of analysis in between the interim periods there. Um, so just another way to, if companies, you know, private, for example, want to reduce further complexity, you know, we do see some people elect some of those private company alternatives, um, especially when there's not a potential exit strategy that might warrant them having to unwind those in future years. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So third, you talked about, um, supplier finance programs. For companies who enter into these arrangements, what changed for them in 2023? Yeah, so the supplier financing standard, I mean, I guess at a very summary level, it just basically created disclosure requirements that did not exist previously in US GAAP Mm -hmm. around these types of arrangements. And so the FASB at the time, they were just seeing an uptick in the number of companies that were kind of entering into these supplier finance programs. and. you know, investors were kind of calling out that, hey, we don't have a lot of transparency into mm-hmm. some of just what's going on here. And so this standard really is just serving as a way to kind of bridge that need for more information. So um, it enhances the transparency of those programs. It requires that a buyer and a supplier finance program disclose information um, for the users of those financial statements to understand, like, what's the nature of that program, any activity related to that supplier finance program during the period, um, what those changes looked like period over period, and then potential magnitude um, um, from those programs as well. So there's you know quantitative measurements that are included in there, but there's also some qualitative just discussion around some of the mechanics of how those programs function. So that is something that companies, if they do enter into those types of programs, it's a new disclosure they should be including in their year-end financial statements. Okay, great. So moving on from, you know, new standards that were effective in 2023, what about um, potential standards that quite aren't effective yet, but companies could elect to early adopt? Yeah, so there's a few, I mean, there's more than a few, but maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Let's cover like maybe the more ones that like cover a broader range. Yeah, so I guess a couple that come to mind. So uh, one is related to just some of the accounting and business combinations. So this is really around contracts acquired in a business combination. Um, so there was a new, not a new ACE, an ASU that came out back in 2021, um, that more or less changed how we would account for contracts acquired. So we're talking contract assets and contract liabilities, you know, deferred revenue type things that would arise from the application of ASC 606. It would change the way those are recognized and measured by the acquirer on the acquisition date. 
Um, so historically, those would have been measured at fair value under previous, you know, similar to other assets and liabilities that are yep. generally recognized at fair value in a business combination. Uh, this ASU changed the accounting and aligned that accounting instead with the way we kind of recognize and measure those contracts in accordance with ASC 606. Um, so, you know, the on the acquisition date, they would be measured as if the acquirer had entered into the original contract at the same date on the same terms as the acquiree and measured yeah. accordingly. So uh, is it safe to say on that one, I think probably... You know, the best way to actually determine what that is, is get an understanding of, you know, how the inquiry accounted for the contracts. And I would guess probably for the most part, most of those kind of just get carried over. Yeah, they do. Carrying so, value. Yeah, generally they, yeah, they'd be recognized more or less at the same amounts in, in most cases as the inquiry. So it does simplify that. Um and like I said, it, it removes just one more element of something having yep. to be fair value um, in that kind of fair value purchase price allocation exercise. Um, so what this typically will do, right? So if you're increasing, like if it's a contract asset that you're now recognizing an increase there, it's going to, the offsets are going to be to some of your goodwills yep. and things like that. So um, just something for companies to think about. I think we are seeing most companies early adopt yeah, and not? apply that because- if you makes think about sure. it, it makes it consistent with any new contracts you enter into with that acquired entity post acquisition are going to be accounted for under 606. So now you kind of have all contracts aligned all following lines. the same yep. guidance and you don't have this kind of weird uh, kind of fair value, <laughs> like straddling going on between certain contracts that were in the acquisition and some not. So we do we are seeing most companies early adopt that. Yep. And I guess just on that last point, so upon adoption, the guidance does have to be applied to all business combinations that occurred in the year of adoption. So if you're a highly acquisitive company and you're doing several acquisitions, you know, you need to obviously play, apply that um, guidance kind of equally across all those acquisitions. Cool. I think that's helpful. What about common control leases? I know there was a new standard that came out. Let's talk about that one. Yeah. So in 2023, I think it was the first standard they released uh, in 2023. Um, so that that ASU requires a lessee and a common control lease to amortize the related leasehold improvements uh, over their useful lives to the common control group. Mm -hmm. And that's regardless of the lease term. So previous to that, the treatment for that amortization um, would have been over the shorter of the useful life of the leasehold improvements or the lease term. And when I'm thinking about this, when why private companies, you know, may want to think about the application of this common control guidance early is, at least in my experience, is like a lot of private companies do have a lot of kind of common control lease arrangements. We tend to see some of that more structuring done. Um, so those companies might find it more beneficial to kind of early adopt this uh, guidance um, and, and amortize it accordingly. And so that's that's something we we see and we tend to recommend as well to a lot of clients that, that have these arrangements. Okay. Um, what about any other developments as it relates to forthcoming accounting standards that private companies should kind of keep be keeping an eye out for? Yeah. So the I guess the other one, and I think we've talked talked about this on a past have, episode. I think so. Yeah. They all kind of blur after a while, but um it's it's around profit interest awards. So it's one I'm for sure uh anxiously awaiting yeah, to come out because we it, see this a lot. We do see this a lot. It's a it's a compensation structure that's often used a lot of times with private companies as well. 
Uh, historically, there's been, you know, maybe diversity in practice. There's a lot of judgment that's necessary in these arrangements to really kind of ascertain what's the correct accounting guidance to apply. And what I mean by that is like whether the award is subject to kind of stock comp or share-based payment guidance in ASC 718, or if it's uh, more akin to kind of a, you know, a a cash bonus or profit sharing type award in ASC 710, more your traditional compensation guidance. Uh, And so what the FASB has put forth, I mean, this, this did originate with kind of the PCC, so the private company council kind of took this on and suggested certain things because it is an application issue that they were seeing heavily, you know, a lot of disparity and a lot of confusion um, with preparers of private companies. But I think it has now been opened up more broadly to all types of reporting entities because there are situations where even profit interests are used um, as it relates to to public companies as well. And so the FASB did put out an exposure draft in, back in, I think, the middle of the year in 2023. Um, around this and in that exposure draft included a lot more like illustrative examples um, to help kind of hammer home ways to be thinking about, you know, how specific terms or the inclusion or exclusion of certain things uh, might lean to a conclusion towards accounting for an award under one set of guidance versus the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've seen that and there's, you know, I think at this point we're kind of just waiting for kind of an issuance of a final standard. And I believe we heard last, and you know, we were at the, we heard the FASB speak at the end of the year at the AICPA kind of SEMA current developments conference. Um, and they spoke about kind of their standard setting activities. And I think the 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 latest update is that we should likely get a, a new ASU at specific to this topic sometime in Q1 of 2024. All right. On the edge of our seats, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would say so, right? <laughs> All right. So let's switch things up just a little bit. Okay. Um, I've heard some noise recently as well around the concept of pillar two. Can you start by explaining what exactly this is? Uh, I can. I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> you mean you're not a tax we, guy? I know we typically, we get some income tax stuff here. <laughs> I don't feel we get into it uh, quite as heavily as some of our other stuff, but there are, uh, this is obviously something that is uh, top of mind for especially multinational companies that um you know, obviously have to report and and pay taxes uh, on, in global jurisdictions. So just to kind of maybe set the stage here. So the if you think about the current international tax landscape, it really has been kind of what it is for a number of years. Um, so the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is OECD, um, which is backed by numbers of countries around the world, they've been pursuing trying to establish this two pillar solution. Um, And kind of the core of what they're trying to achieve with this two pillar kind of tax solution, it's really aimed at alleviating certain uh, global tax challenges um, that have really come to surface as we're thinking of, you know, think about the landscape of just our current economy and the digitization of that economy. Uh, And so this, this two pillar framework is really supposed to kind of help change current international tax practices, um, which obviously if you change the way you account for and and pay and your tax expenses and things like that, it's obviously going to then filter into financial statements, impact earnings and cash flows and other things like that. So, um, so that's kind of the, the genesis of like how we got to where we're at, but 
in its simplest terms, like Pillar 2 basically proposes a global minimum tax that's assessed for each jurisdiction where a multinational company operates. So this includes large multinational businesses, including private companies, which is why we're talking about it today with mm -hmm. a number of other private company issues. Um, but it's those that have over 750 million euros of total revenue. Um, they will have to pay a minimum effective tax rate under Pillar 2 of 15% of income that arises in each jurisdiction where they operate. Um, so there's been about 140 countries um, that have really kind of adopted this framework and are have agreed to really kind of create this two-pillar solution to, like I said, address this kind of digitization of the economy. Um, the rules, so they're known as like the model rules, you'll hear people use that term. They do take effect for tax years beginning in 2024. So okay. now, now uh, yep. in many jurisdictions, we're, wa we're still watching the evolution of other jurisdictions, but like there already are some that it will be effective. So that is something that companies do have to, uh, frankly, monitor. It's kind yeah. of a compliance exercise. Yeah. It's more things to kind of keep a pulse on amongst all the other things that we always talk about on this podcast. Um, and so that, that, that's essentially like kind of where we're at with it. So all of that's great information. Um, especially I think there's probably some listeners that have never even heard of the concept of pillar two. What are some other things like private companies need to be, need to worry about what, what types of companies outside of like that revenue threshold, um, are subject to pillar two. What we're seeing and talking with a lot of management teams that are obviously multinational, you know, sizable, sizable operations. So they've got the, that revenue threshold kind of ticked um, as far as potential applicability. But it's really figuring out which entities in their business structure um, would be subject to the model rules um, and then trying to evaluate, you know, depending on which jurisdiction it's in and things like that. Are there any potential safe harbor transitional provisions that maybe they could take? And so there are transitional safe harbors um, in certain circumstances that may help reduce some of the administrative burden because if you just think about the mechanics and the compliance costs mm -hmm. of keeping up with all this stuff um, mm -hmm. could be a little overwhelming especially for private companies that uh, tend to run a lot leaner um, you know so it could be a reduction in some of that burden um, there's also some transitional safe harbors that help delay um, some of the requirements to perform some of the calculations that are outlined in the model rules um, and really help eliminate some of those tax complexities. Okay. And so while some of the safe harbors, you know, might offer relief on a certain jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis, there are still financial statements on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis that are prepared in accordance with generally accepted accounting standards. And those are still required. So companies are still going to have to you know, ascertain the implications here in yep. order to include this stuff in, in their financial statements as well. Just from like a landscape, you know, there are a number of countries that have already kind of enacted um, kind of pillar two legislation um, already. And so that's something that I think companies are gonna have to actively monitor. So Japan, South Korea, um, you know, they fully have enacted pillar two legislation. We've seen developments in the UK, the Switzerland, Germany, other EU kind of member states as well. Um, so it's definitely something companies need to pay attention to. Uh, if you're wondering about here in the U.S., uh, legislation to enact Pillar 2 is is still kind of pending, I guess. <laughs> um, so we don't have 
anything yet today. Um, so that's something that we'll definitely have to kind of follow whether or not legislation moves forward or not. There's been some proposals and things that have been kind of pushed through, but just, you know, the political climate here tends to derail certain pieces of legislation. Yeah. And so at this point, uh, nothing yet. But again, that doesn't necessarily kind of, you know, provide you full comfort not having to worry with this. If you already operate internationally in other jurisdictions, you're probably gonna have to start thinking about it or should be thinking about it already. Just like we said, some of this is effective in certain jurisdictions starting this year. Okay. So does pillar two impact accounting for taxes, um, you know, for companies reporting under US GAAP for the top up tax created by the model? It doesn't necessarily. So there is some, I guess, relief if you want that the FASB has kind of put forth um, as it relates to pillar two, if companies are thinking about under existing ASC 740 guidance, so the income tax standard, like how should we be thinking about this like pillar two tax? Uh, so under US GAAP, the FASB has concluded that uh, the minimum tax is really kind of akin to an alternative minimum tax per that okay. guidance. And so based on that assumption, reporting entities would not have to recognize or adjust any of their deferred tax uh, assets or liabilities for the estimated future effects of pillar two taxes, as long as the enacted legislation is consistent with the model rules in those jurisdictions. So assuming as companies kind of go forth and you know, pass legislation that aligns with the model rules, then um, you can view it as more of an alternative minimum tax. And so what that means is that the tax would then just be accounted for as a period cost. Okay. So it's going to impact your effective tax rate in the year that that tax obligation arises, but um, you won't have to think about any impacts to deferreds. We've hit on some of the accounting and reporting topics that private companies need to keep in mind today. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else looming out there that you think entities need to keep a close watch over. I don't know anything on the sustainability <laughs> front. Maybe it's like we can't have an episode without yeah, talking about no, that's sustainability. Fair. And and there are. Um, I guess maybe one I'll point out um, that maybe just in case private companies haven't been following that's that is specific here to uh, sustainability reporting requirements in the U.S. is around kind of the California climate bills. Mm -hmm. uh, I know we've done an at-length discussion of this in a separate episode, so definitely check that out. But, um, you know, one thing I think companies need to be aware of is unlike the SEC rule, which obviously applies to SEC registrants or companies looking to file a registration statement and access capital, public capital markets, uh, the California rule does apply equally to public and private companies that meet uh, its certain kind of scoping thresholds. And so those are really primarily based on large companies. So large private companies will have to report. Um, that operate in California. Yeah, that operate yep. in the state of California will have to report certain sustainability related information. So there's actually three kind of bills. There's two Senate bills and there's an assembly bill that all kind of make up the whole like California climate package, if you want to call it that, um, that everyone's talking about. So one is related to emissions reporting. So it's Senate Bill 253. Um, that's got a threshold of companies that, you know, basically yield more than a billion dollars in revenue that operate in the state of California. And that's annual kind of global revenues. It's not necessarily revenue, revenue generated in the, in the yep. state of California. So uh, that one's expected to pull in. I think early estimates are around like 5,000 companies. 
Um, and then in addition to that one, there's a separate Senate bill that relates to uh, more kind of climate-related financial risks. So that's Senate Bill 261. Uh, similar kind of scoping exercise there, except the the revenue threshold's cut in half. So it's a, it actually pulls in more companies because it has a $500 million threshold. So that's estimated to impact over 10,000 public and private companies um, that get pulled into that. And they each have different reporting requirements and kind of where you report on things. And uh, for the, you know, the emissions reporting one that I talked about uh, at first, you know, that one has assurance components as well. And, you know, then like I said, there was a third bill that's around kind of carbon market disclosures. And so that one relates more to like carbon emission schemes and offsets and things like that, or claims that companies might make that operate in the state. So, you know, I would just encourage companies if they haven't been following kind of the sustainability reporting process that there likely could be um, if you already operate in the state of California and you are sizable that um, it's something you probably need to start preparing for today even though some of the requirements are you know a couple years out just the the scope of what needs to be done and just the infrastructure and just thinking about that there's an insurance component with some of this stuff so having to be kind of audit ready or uh, review ready if you want. There's limited assurance that transitions to reasonable over time. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. And so uh, we, we don't want, you know, private companies to be caught flat-footed just like ignoring it because right. they thought climate would pour or something really only relates to like an SEC rule. There's actually a rule that could hold them in as well. Okay. All right. So once again, that was obviously a lot of information. We talked about a lot of different topics. Um, we know if you're a private company and you're listening to this, you are extremely busy with your and so uh, yeah, back to work. So I think we'll wrap today's episode up here. Um, obviously, feel free to reach out to either Adam or I on LinkedIn if you guys ever have any questions. And thanks again for listening to Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.